And it is uh, really my great pleasure and quite an honor to uh, welcome Edward Asner uh, to the WDEV Airways. Mr. Asner is going to be doing his one-man production of FDR in uh, two locations here in Vermont. Uh, He will be doing it up in St. Johnsbury on the 3rd of March and later that week at the Flynn Theater. I want to go back here a little bit uh, and uh, ask you about your early part of your career. I, I didn't realize that you were part of Second City. Who was around when you were in Second City? Well, first of all, I have to say I'm a kind of honorary alumnus. Uh, I started with the Playwrights Theater Club, which Paul Sills began. And uh, we lasted for two years, conventional, good little theater. Then while he... Uh, as the city was busy trying to close us down at the end of those that second year, he began Compass with David Shepard and uh, the Compass players, and that consisted of Mike and Elaine, Shelley Berman, Barbara Harris, Severn Darden, a few other people. Uh, that, of course, took off very well. And after a few years, that folded, and uh, he had a hiatus in there, and then he came back and he started Second City. And because of our long history together, I used to work out with him, but I never became part of the group per se. But that whole uh, improv is is really pretty critical training. It's uh, it's phenomenal training, and I, I I think I have a smattering of it. Certainly, I was working out with him. I certainly developed something. And Paul used his mother's techniques of. Uh, of uh, uh, working out of improv and all that uh, became the Bible for a lot of people. Uh, I can't remember the title of the book, but um, her name was Viola Spolin. Uh, anyway, I've been associated with them, and I, they invited me to their 25th reunion, which was televised in Chicago, and I participated in a couple of the routines. So uh, they... Uh, they kind of adopted me. Uh huh. So, who were some of the who were some of the comedians who were around at that time who we might know? Um, comedians. Well, uh, everyone you ever saw on uh, Saturday Night Live seemed to have come from uh, Second City or a CTV, certainly. Uh huh. You did a bunch of TV work before you got involved in the Mary Tyler Moore show. Um, in fact, I can remember there was an episode of uh, Hawaii Five-O, among many that you were on. Yeah. H- how did you get the Mary Tyler Moore role? Oh, God. What a, what a treat that was. Um, I had gone through two bad years here. and Finally, uh, I had a great year. And during the course of that great year, was asked to um, read for Alan Burns and Jim Brooks. Um, they, uh, I had done a. Uh, oh God, this is a long. I hope it's not a boring story. No. Uh, <laughs> the uh, Perry Mason people. Perry Mason is going off the air, and uh, they were making a movie pilot starring Jim Hutton, and I was cast as a police chief in that by Wally Grauman, the director. Uh, I began 
using the humor in the character, which shocked the hell out of the um, the suits at uh, 20th Century Fox, and they uh, they questioned Wally about it whether I was being too funny, and uh, he uh, he said, "Let him go, let him go." So I went, and I made him a buffoon, and. Uh, Grant Tinker was an official at uh, 20th Century Fox, and he recommended me to Alan and Jim. They asked Ethel Weinand, vice president of talent at CBS at the time, uh, can Ed Asner do comedy? And I had avoided it somewhat in the nine years I'd been in L.A. Uh, you didn't get discovered in those days. Through comedy, you got discovered by drama. And uh, Ethel Weinand, the great grand lady that she was, said, Ed Asner can do anything. She had never seen me do comedy, but uh, I think she had a great deal of faith. So they brought me in to read, and I read this great scene that they had written. And after I finished, Jim Brooks said, well, that was a very intelligent reading, which meant it wasn't funny. So uh, they said, well, we have you back with Mary. We want you to read it crazy, wiggy, all-out, wild and uh, we'll have you back in a week or so to read Mary. I started to walk out, and I said, wait, wait a minute. I don't know if I can, if I know what you want me to do, so why don't you let me try it that way now, and if I can't do it, don't have me back. Uh, I've never talked like that at a reading or an audition in my life. So they kind of humped and harumphed, and I said, well, we do have another appointment. All right, try it. So I read it like a, an idiot, crazy again, wild, wiggy. They laughed their asses off. And they said, read it just like that when you come back with Mary. So I left, and I said, what the hell did I do? What, what was it? How do I repeat it? Couldn't, couldn't really nail anything. I came back, read it as crazily as I could. And uh, they laughed again. And I laughed. I found out years later that Mary turned to them and said, Are you sure? In that, that Mary in that Mary way. Yeah, yeah. And uh, they said, That's your Lou Graham. So after a lot of trial and error, working on these great scripts, Jay Sandridge at directing, uh, I became Lou Graham and a remarkably memorable character. You know, what's so amazing is that when you then made, you then took it to the Lou Grant show, it really was a totally different show. It really was not a comedy. And how you could do that after that character, after Lou Grant got so typecast, is amazing. Well, it's the kind of thing that was never done before and it hasn't been done since. It, it, it's, it's an unbelievable... Uh, request it, it's it's stupid in a lot of ways if they had started Lou Grant and called him called him Joe Schmidt uh, it would have been a lot easier uh, because I, I had to go through such changes uh, they expected me to take this comedic character and turn him right into an hour uh, dramedy so to speak character and nobody had done an hour show before uh, Writers, producers, you name it. No, nobody knew how to do a series, uh, an hour series. 
And the first two weeks in TV Guide, Lou Grant was listed as a comedy. So hmm. I went through a lot of grief and self-discovery, rediscovery. And uh, I would say not until uh, sometime in the second year did I feel, even begin to feel comfortable at the transition I had uh, had to discover it by myself. Nobody else knew what to do, so I, I began rediscovering. And fortunately, CBS didn't have a stockpile of shows to replace us with. We won a lot of Emmys the first year, and we were granted breathing space for another year. And you were incredibly popular when the show was ultimately canceled, which you think had real political overtones. Yes, it did. It did. Uh, those in power can deny, 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 but my involvement in Central America uh, uh, created a firestorm and uh, a lot of controversy and uh, led to the cancellation of the show. We're talking with actor Ed Asner. He's going to be here in Vermont performing his one-man show, FDR. He'll be doing that in St. Johnsbury, March 3rd, and then in Burlington on the 6th. Would you rather be known as an actor who was an activist or an activist who is an actor? You thought I was just going to ask about Mary Tyler Moore, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. Well, being so ingrained as an actor, loving it to the depth of my soul, I um, I would uh, plead to be recognized as an actor first, but I, I, it, it doesn't happen because the reception I get out there... Um, is all too often uh, larded, coded with stuff I've done as an activist, and it's almost impossible to separate them. Mm-hmm. But you don't have any regrets, right? Uh, or do you? At the time, at the time, I uh, I often describe the, the, the situation as I wouldn't give a million dollars to go through it again uh, and I um, wouldn't take a million dollars to go through it again uh, it was a vast learning experience of what the political world really consisted of and um, I mean it stands to reason uh, once you take a political stand as a person uh, whatever you do as uh, to earn your daily bread will automatically be affected by people. Uh, you can understand why producers who think only in terms of the bottom dollar most of the time would not want somebody who shoots his mouth off. They want a piece of machinery that will produce the drama or the uh, the comic uh, appearance without any um, uh, how should I say it? without any trappings uh, because automatically when you when you take a political position there are going to be people who say I don't want to watch him 
He's a fascist, or he's a communist, and uh, it's uh, it's burdensome. Talk about political stands. Let's talk a little bit about Roosevelt. Clearly, you got this role doing the one-man show because of your remarkable likeness to FDR. Uh (laughs) That's a a good one. No, I I wear a few appurtenances to, to do the role. I think I've captured the sound of the man, and uh, that saves me. But uh, he was uh, certainly taller than I am and a patrician and not as fat as I am. So uh, it's a stretch. What do you remember about him growing up? You were born in 1929. Yeah. He was God the Father as far as I was concerned. I was in high school when he died, and I walked around in the days saying, what happens to us now, what happens to us now? I, uh, uh, I've i never known another president who could approach him, approach what he did, what he accomplished. Uh, he was brilliant and charismatic, and... Uh, saved the country and uh, I think he he became the template for what a president should be so um, and do you think with all of it with all of his faults and he had many faults but out of those faults he was able to generate a mechanism to get this country running and going and surviving and extending democracy that it is. What would you describe as his faults? Uh, he was he was a chameleon. He would would pit one person against another. He would pit one idea against another and juggle them and shake them up and, and see what what really worked. Find out the thing that worked. He would uh, he would uh, suffer enemies for as long as uh, he needed them. In many cases, he suffered friends, supporters, as long as he needed them. And when it became expeditious for him to drop them, he did. Uh, he, uh, he was at the top of the heap, culling and picking and choosing ideas and... Uh, and uh, using all he could, and uh, uh, I don't think that in in the end, finally, that you could say that Roosevelt will save my ass if it was necessary to dispense with you. He did, but out of that, uh, he was able to uh, to move the country ahead. Uh, I've often heard, for instance, that with uh, the Townsend plan in California with Huey Long and the uh, the, the Norman Thomases and the, the John L. Lewis's attacking from the left, that uh, uh, Roosevelt, in that particular case, was driven leftward more than he would have gone without those pressures. But he did lean to the left when necessary. 
Let me just stop. It was brilliant. And, and in this culling of ideas, for instance, there, there's, a, there's a point in there where uh, Sumner Wells was a, was a key advisor in the show. This, 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 always counting on Sumner Wells. Uh, he had another key advisor um, who served as an ambassador and, um, named Bill Bullitt. And uh, his his advisors, his cabinet members, were were always fighting and feuding both with him and with each other. And there came a time when Sumner Wells' uh, homosexuality was used by Bill Bullitt uh, for ridicule, for uh, for uh, creating. They both were competing to become uh, Secretary of State when Cordell Hall would finally leave. And I've always had the feeling that uh, that uh, Roosevelt uh, knew of Wells' homosexuality, uh, ignored it, and used... Uh, used him to the fullest extent he could. And when Bill Bullitt began to make sport of it and, uh, in essence, destroy his effectiveness, uh, Roosevelt, uh, uh, so Wells then was, found himself uh, in a situation where he was no longer effectual and resigned. And... Uh, Roosevelt then called in Bill Bullitt and uh, fired him. Uh, I think that uh, it's possible that because of the, the the spreading knowledge of Wells' homosexuality, that Roosevelt felt it was time for him to go, and possibly maybe even used Bill Bullitt to to effectuate it. And then having used Bill Bullitt to effectuate it. He then got rid of him. So uh, I think that was the that that's the kind of man he was capable of being. So when you say that when you grew up, you you put him on a pedestal, he was almost a god. It that sounds like he may be slightly off the pedestal after you learned all this. Well, in my position, I think what excuse me, what this country was was like, what was what it was in. As he says, it was a country on the verge of revolution that he kept the machine going to keep it going. And uh, uh, he does not fall, in my estimation, for having to do the, the brutal, necessary things he had to do as president of this country. Did you ever think about getting into politics? I know you were head of the Screenwriters Guild, which is probably actors. pretty um, actors' guild. I mean, it's pretty political. But do you ever think about getting into the political office? Well, I was accused of it at the time that I became controversial. People thought I was attempting to do another Ronald Reagan and use it to uh, to advance my my life into the era of politics. But by the time I came along, I, I realized. What the hell would I be, a uh, a congressman? But uh, it 
it was, the boat had sailed by the time I was I was uh, uh, beginning to be thought of as uh, a politician, and uh, I realized I, I could not possibly. Uh, oh God, there it goes again. I could not possibly uh, uh, achieve anything beyond what I could achieve as an actor activist. So no, I never purposely conscious consciously thought of running for any office. So how is FDR relevant to people in 2010? Well, frankly, I uh I'm out there with that one man show and giving some high points from FDR's um uh, a legendary stature to try to influence people as to all and everything that a president has to be. Uh, uh, I think that one of the best things is to hear, to having heard him say, I love my enemies. I love my enemies. I love the clash. And uh, he... Uh, willing to be so outspoken to show his strength to um, to say uh, here's my chest pierce me I dare you and I don't think we have presidents like that anymore you said you really were able to nail the voice that's why you think this has been successful you've done a lot of voiceover work over the years so how were you able to nail FDR's voice I I only do it through my through my own remembrance of his speaking. Uh, my God! Everybody wants everybody wants to talk to you. Apparently, you're leading me to. I I thought I'd put it away. I'll, I'll, I'm going to put it away permanently now. <laughs> uh, uh, I um, I. Uh, I, I think I do it by osmosis. Uh, I remember his speeches, the fireside chats, and um, uh, as I speak, I merely try to acquire a semblance of the accent and uh, and a and a, um, a level of the voice, and I, I merely let fly. Is there any way you can give me a little taste of this? Oh, you rat sink. All right, let me see. I'll throw my beret up in the air and catch it. Ah! <laughs> You're not pretty enough. Uh, let's see. Um, all right. Well, you asked for it. Your poor listeners are going to get it. Um, hang on a second. I'm looking. There we go. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm delighted to see you. The words you just heard were from my first address to the nation as president in 1933. They were meant to get my new administration off to a good start. Getting off to a good start, when you? 
o'clock to a large number of people is very important. I often think of my old friend, Governor Al Smith, who faced a similar problem. When he was asked to say a few words of cheer to the inmates of Sing Sing Prison, the governor, forgetting exactly who his audience was, started by saying, My fellow convicts, my, my fellow citizens, forgive me, I, mis, I misspoke. My fellow citizens. Well, the convicts, aware they had lost their rights as citizens, began to laugh. And the governor, sensing his mistake, started again. This time he said, My fellow convicts. Well, that produced even more laughter. Now the governor, quite flustered, started for a third time. And this time he said, Well, anyway, I'm glad to see so many of you here. And, like the governor, I, too, am glad to see so many of you here. I'm delighted to be here. That's about it. Well, that's great. You sounded great health, too. Mm. Vocally, I am. The rest of you, perhaps not. I've got a bad hip, which 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 makes it real comfy to sit in that wheelchair. Uh huh. So, yeah. so do you do the show in a in the the whole show in a wheelchair? No, I do it with canes and a wheelchair. And do you deal with the extramarital questions? Yeah, you do. Okay, maybe we will leave that. For uh, the audience to see the first time through, we'll leave that for another night. It's uh, it's really been an honor. You're one of those people that I felt that I uh, lived with in my childhood, growing up on Saturday nights. With uh... so, do you keep in touch with Mary at all? Oh, she lives in New York, and I'm out here. We rarely, if ever, get together during the course of the year. But of course, if it's anything to do with the show, we we reassemble quickly. And a lot of reunions. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for your time, and uh, we we wish you a great trip here to Vermont. I look forward to it very much.